In 1959, MGM Studios released a film that was to become one of the most loved and honored movies of all time. The story of a young man's epic journey from nobility to slavery and back again. Ben-Hur won 11 Academy Awards, a record that will probably never be equaled. The film was adapted from a novel by Lou Wallace, a writer who became a devout Christian while working on the book. The movie provided an awesome glimpse of the truth that had so transformed his life. Amid the epic scope and dramatic action of this lavish spectacle, one simple message stood out, the transforming power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Decades later, hearts still swell and tears flow at the depiction of the terrible beauty of Calvary. We watch as Jesus' blood mingles with the rain and then flows out to the world, cleansing the leprosy that plagued Judah Ben-Hur's mother and sister, and finally even washing away the hatred that had bound his own heart. A more powerful and faithful cinematic expression of the doctrine of redemption can scarcely be imagined. Hollywood, with all its glitter and carnality, had truly created something that was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, noble, lovely, and true. This shining moment was short-lived, however. Within a year, United Artists released two films that were to take Hollywood's depictions of the Christian faith in a completely different direction. We call down hellfire on the man who has sinned against the word. This presentation is an examination of that direction and where we have arrived a generation later. After briefly examining these two groundbreaking films, we'll explore three aspects of the modern entertainment industry's view of Christianity. First, how does the industry in general view Jesus? Second, how does the entertainment industry generally treat the faith and practices of Christianity? Last, how does the industry on average view Christians? Finally, and perhaps most importantly, we'll close by exploring what you, the viewer, can do to address the problems raised by this presentation. Because no matter how far our culture has fallen, no matter how hopeless our captivity in Babylon appears, remember the lesson learned by Judah Ben-Hur. There is salvation in the blood of Christ. The same cross that silenced the blasphemies of pagan Rome can once again work a miracle in a culture gone mad. We're coming back to the old-time religion. When Elmer Gantry was released in 1960, the now infamous Hollywood production code was 30 years old. This code, which provided moral guidelines to be used in film production, had come to be viewed by many in the industry as an unnecessary and increasingly irrelevant restriction on their craft. Boundaries began to be pushed. Among them was Article 8 of the Code, which stated, No film may throw ridicule on any religious faith. In many ways, Elmer Gantry signaled the beginning of the end of Hollywood's compliance with this aspect of the Code. The film, which went on to win three Academy Awards, featured Burt Lancaster in the role of a flashy evangelist who was more interested in money, sex, and booze than in saving souls. And then I just about love everybody. Especially the girls. <laughs> to be fair, the film makes no overt suggestion that Gantry is the typical evangelist. In fact, the movie continually flaunts his hypocrisy and even provides a useful warning on the corrupting influence of power and money in the church. Ain't that entertainment? What's the difference, huh? It's up to us to make a success out of Christianity. Unfortunately, however, the movie doesn't stop there. Its condemnation of Gantry spills over to cast doubt and even ridicule on the faith that films like Sergeant York once celebrated. Christianity is fine, the new Hollywood seems to suggest, as long as one doesn't take it too seriously. Unless you repent. And certainly, old-fashioned and irrational concepts such as sin, repentance, or being born again have got to go. We're a fertile land for corn, beans, squash, rumble seat sex, and revivalism. Hallelujah, brother. Significantly, Gantry's false religion is not countered by true Christianity, which scarcely makes an appearance in the movie, but rather is exposed by a tough, 
an atheistic newspaper reporter. No doubt the character here represents the perspective of the story's author, Sinclair Lewis, an ex-journalist himself who made a career out of preaching the gospel of rationalism and other man-centered philosophies. It's worth noting the disclaimer that opens Elmer Gantry. In deference to the production code, as well as to protect the movie from obvious charges of anti-Christian bias, the producers solemnly note that the conduct of some revivalists make a mockery of the traditional beliefs and practices of organized Christianity. They then go on to make the extraordinary pronouncement, freedom of religion is not licensed to abuse the faith of the people. Ironically, Another film released by the same studio in the same year turned these noble, if largely empty, sentiments on their head. Darwin took us forward to a hilltop from where we could look back and see the way from which we came. But for this insight and for this knowledge, we must abandon our faith in the pleasant poetry of Genesis. One of the most enduring films of its era, Inherit the Wind has been universally hailed as a brilliant recreation of a fascinating episode in American history. Popular reviewer Leonard Maltin called it an absorbing drama based on the notorious Scopes monkey trial of 1925 and then went on to say the issue is real and still relevant. The issue, of course, is evolution. And undergirding it is the classic struggle between religion and rationalism whether God's word or the suppositions of science should provide the foundation upon which men and women order their lives. Had Inherit the Wind been faithful to the facts concerning this, quote, fascinating episode in American history, end quote, Hollywood would be immune to the charges of bias on this important issue. The truth is, however, that the drama played out on the big screen bore little resemblance to the actual trial. Consider just a few of the film's many distortions and the bias they reveal. The movie opens with a rather ominous rendition of the song Old Time Religion. As drums pound, sinister-looking men begin to gather together. The focus of their dark conspiracy is revealed as they enter the local high school and burst into a science class. There, John Scopes is found passionately teaching evolution to his eager students. For our science lesson for today, we will continue our discussion of Darwin's theory of the descent of man. He's promptly thrown into jail, where he remains throughout the course of the trial. Help then arrives in the persons of two smart, tough-talking agnostics, writer H.L. Mencken and trial lawyer Clarence Darrow. Scopes is, for the moment, saved from the fundamentalist Christians who gather outside his jail to throw things and breathe threats of a lynching. In reality, John Scopes' classroom was never invaded. His arrest was a sham perpetrated by pro-evolution forces, and he never spent a moment in jail. A math teacher and football coach, Scopes had spent two weeks substitute teaching in a biology class where he simply helped students review for a final exam. The trial came about as a result of the ACLU's desire to test a state law forbidding, not the teaching of evolution per se, but only the theory that man had descended from lower animals. Scopes reluctantly volunteered to be their guinea pig, and in return had his tuition covered for graduate school. As for the mean-spiritedness and hypocrisy of the Bible-believing town folk, a theme the film pounds home time and again, visiting reporters in fact noted the kindness and, quote, extreme courtesy of the town citizens. Clarence Darrow himself observed that he had been treated better, kindlier, and more hospitably than I fancy would have been the case in the North. Perhaps even more dishonest than these distortions of the historical record is the film's portrayal of renowned lawyer and three-time nominee for president, William Jennings Bryan. As the prosecutor in this case, it fell to Bryan to defend the biblical account of man's origins. The film uses the epic courtroom battle between Bryan and Darrow as a dramatic device to illustrate the struggle between faith and suppositional science. Guess who's made to look like an idiot? The Bible satisfies me. It is enough. It frightens me to think of the state of learning in the world if everybody had your driving curiosity. 
Throughout the film, Brian is portrayed as a stupid, close-minded, hypocritical egotist. One minute, he's shown cruelly intimidating Scope's fiance on the witness stand. The next, using legal pretense to block scientific testimony he fears will destroy his case. And I refuse to allow these agnostic scientists to employ this courtroom as a sounding board, as a platform from which they can shout their heresies into the headlines. He's portrayed as blindly intolerant when he states his opposition to the use of Darwin's book in public schools, and then admits he's never read it. I am not the least interested in the pagan hypotheses of that book. Never read it, and I never will. Under cross-examination, he prudishly states his belief that sex is inherently sinful. What is the biblical evaluation of sex? It is considered original sin. And finally, sensing defeat, he insists upon giving a final, desperate, and ultimately pathetic summation, and then slumps to the floor in the throes of death. The fact is, the real William Jennings Bryan was almost universally recognized as a brilliant, gracious Christian gentleman. One expert on the Scopes trial, despite the fact that he disagreed with Bryan's religious and scientific views, was nevertheless forced to admit. As a speaker, Bryan radiated good-humored sincerity. In personality, he was forceful, energetic, and opinionated, but genial, kindly, generous, likable, and charming. He showed a praiseworthy tolerance towards those who disagreed with him. Bryan was the greatest American orator of his time, and perhaps any time. Tell us some more. What did he say about the holy state of matrimony? Did he compare it to the breeding of animals? Objection! The fact is, no woman ever took the stand during the trial. More importantly, court transcripts reveal that it was Darrell, not Brian, who was at times rude, drawing even a contempt of court citation for repeatedly interrupting and insulting the judge. I hold that the very law we are here to enforce excludes such testimony. The fact is it was also Darrell, not Brian, who prevented the scientists from testifying. Brian had been granted the right to cross-examine, and Darrow was so opposed to his experts being questioned that he never called them to the stand. I am not the least interested in the pagan hypotheses of that book. Never read it, and I never will. The fact is, it was Brian who introduced Darwin's book, and then quoted from it as evidence in the trial. Transcripts again reveal that of the two lawyers, Brian had the better command of both the meaning and the mechanism of evolution. Sex. It is considered original sin. The fact is, Brian made no mention of sex during this testimony. Apparently, Hollywood couldn't resist introducing sex into the film, as well as the implication that Bible-believing Christians are prudes. And finally, the fact is, Brian gave no final speech. He did later present a written summation, one that was characteristically clear and well-reasoned. He died in his sleep of an unknown cause five days after the conclusion of the trial. Today, some 30 years later, television docudramas and movies like JFK are criticized for at times playing fast and loose with the facts in order to generate interest or perhaps push a particular point of view. I submit to you, however, that Oliver Stone in his wildest flight of fancy would be hard-pressed to equal the distorted view of history found in Inherit the Wind. The question then becomes, why? Why twist the facts in such a way as to make the agnostics appear kinder, brighter, and more heroic than they really were? Why the dishonest attempt to lampoon Bible-believing Christians? Well, these questions really answer themselves, don't they? And more importantly, they point to a once-hidden agenda in the entertainment industry that has, as you're about to see, become all too open and real. Elmer Gantry and Inherit the Wind came out as America was undergoing profound social and moral changes. For many in Hollywood, the do-your-own-thing attitude of the 60s couldn't come hard or fast enough. By the middle of the decade, the beleaguered production code was abandoned altogether. Around the same time, the two Christian film offices that had been active in providing moral guidelines for the entertainment industry for over 30 years were shut down as well. New ideas and a new breed of people began to take their place. 
Among them was Anton Zander LaVey. We believe in greed, we believe in selfishness, we believe in all of the lustful thoughts that motivate man because this is man's nature. After opening up his Church of Satan in San Francisco, LaVey began to advise filmmakers on matters involving the occult. His most notable contribution came in 1968 with the release of Rosemary's Baby. Though not a significant player in Hollywood, LaVey's satanic beliefs make his observations about the film industry's new attitude towards Jesus very interesting. The satanic age, he said, began about the year 1966, and now we are beginning to see in Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell, Jesus as fallible, no different from any other man, which is originally what Satan was supposed to represent. LaVey proved to be far more discerning than the multitudes of church-going people who bought into this dumbing down of the Messiah. Lost is the mystery of the incarnate God, the divine nature of Jesus so powerfully suggested in Ben-Hur. Instead, we're given the hippie Christ, a savior so drained of deity that one is left with the same impression expressed by Mary Magdalene in the song, He's Just a Man. He's a man, he's just a man. Co-writer Timothy Rice removed any doubt about the play's intentions when he told Time Magazine, it happens that we don't see Christ as God, but simply the right man at the right time. He's just one more. The idea that Jesus was just a man and not also fully divine, is called Arianism, the oldest and most damnable heresy of the Christian era. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John warned the church to be on guard against its persistent influence. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And by that, he doesn't just mean any old Christ, but the one prophesied by the Old Testament the one who is repeatedly called Jehovah, Adonai, Elohim, and other names for God. Continuing with the verse, He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Again, implying all that the Old Testament and Jesus himself said about the Son, that he was one with the Father, co-equal, and eternally pre-existent, perfectly holy, in a word, God. This is the essence, the lifeblood of the Christian faith, that God the Son came to earth as a man in order to redeem man. If Jesus is not God, then there is no redemption. And this awesome truth, more than any other, hell seeks to deny. And there's another important dynamic going on here as well. The essence of Satanism as men like LaVey know all too well, is simply being your own God, believing and doing whatever you want. It's a religion, in other words, with many, many followers. Most are just not as open and honest about it as LaVey. And tied in with this being your own God idea is the notion of becoming like God, the original sin of man. And what inevitably happens here is this. Because we are far too fallen to become like Him, well, we try to make Him more like us. And so we create an idol, a false image of God that better fits into our personal agenda. And so, if Jesus was just a man, well, there's really no need to fear and obey him, is there? You want to know who my God is? Fear. You look inside me and that's all you'll find. Having cracked open the door of Arianism, it was left to Martin Scorsese, the most acclaimed director of our time to slam it open. Lucifer is inside me. The Jesus portrayed in The Last Temptation of Christ was not only just a man, but a confused, weak, and sinful one at that. The film opens with him assisting the Romans with the crucifixion. And before the first reel is over, we've seen him behave like a madman, suggests that God's love is the cause of this madness. God loves me. I know he loves me. I want him to stop. Watch a prostitute have sex, and in general, act like a man who desperately needs a savior, rather than being one. Who's doing struggling? With who? I don't know, I'm struggling. This Jesus was completely unrecognizable 
from the Christ of Scripture, the one who clearly knew who he was by the age of 12, who confronted intense physical, emotional, and spiritual trials with a serenity and boldness that amazed even his enemies, and who became the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God, because he was entirely without sin. At the heart of this rank blasphemy stands Nikos Kazantzakis, the author of the book upon which the movie was based. In his autobiography, Kazantzakis provides some profound insights into the spiritual journey that gave rise to his particular interpretation of Jesus' life. First, he describes being introduced to the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher who instigated the God is Dead movement. His pronouncements struck me as impious blasphemies, he wrote but had a mysterious fascination. His words were a seductive spell which dizzied and intoxicated. They made your heart dance. Under the influence of Nietzsche, Kazantzakis' Greek Orthodox beliefs mutated into something that bore little resemblance to Christianity. He noted, for example, that in his understanding, the two figures, Christ and Antichrist, gradually merged. Was it true then? that these two were not eternal enemies? Good and evil are identical. Later, while studying in Vienna, he became enamored with the teachings of Buddhism. Of all the people the earth has begotten, he wrote in his autobiography, Buddha stands resplendently at its summit, an absolutely pure spirit. And finally, Kazantzakis embraced what he came to consider his greatest discovery of all, Vladimir Lenin, Karl Marx, and the messianic hope of the communist revolution. We have a duty to follow, he wrote, and aid this eternal assault in our own epoch, to work in collaboration with it. Collaborate he did. Drunk with the wine of spiritual deception, Kazantzakis filled 500 pages with his perverse and bitter meditations on the life of Christ. This is the book Martin Scorsese embraced and fought a long sacrificial battle to film. This is the version of Jesus' life that so inspired actors and artists that they were willing to work for a fraction of their regular fee. And this became the film that industry critics called faith-affirming, a masterpiece, and one of the most serious, literate, complex, and deeply religious films ever made. What does all this tell us about the spiritual orientations of so many in today's entertainment industry? The release of The Last Temptation of Christ, the entertainment industry's general inability to understand that poets who worship at the feet of Nietzsche, Buddha, and Marx are uniquely unqualified to interpret the life of the Son of God. The capacity to view outright heresy and describe it as one of the most deeply religious films ever made all point to a strong spiritual delusion, a type of moral insanity that has settled over much of our culture like a blanket. We have humanized God and deified man to the extent that we think nothing of judging, even mocking the Almighty. We flippantly take His name in vain. We manufacture false images at assembly line rates. We place so many gods before Him that once again there's no room at the end. We dare to ridicule the one who deigned to leave eternity, clothe himself in human flesh, and go to a cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins. Take a look around. Have you made your decision for Christ? Oh, oh, Jesus! Sage Christ on a popsicle stick. My God, I'm so hungry! Jesus! Harold's Christ on a... That's why I think the Last Supper, I know they doctored that up. It's Last Supper! Somebody This is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a and fine Beaujolais. Jesus Christ walks into a hotel. He hands the innkeeper three nails and he asks, Can you put me up for the night? The third of the Ten Commandments given to us by God warns that we should treat even the mention of His name with great awe and respect, never using it in a casual or disrespectful way. The Old Testament saints took this command very seriously. 
insisting eventually that scribes wash their hands and use a new pen when even writing the name of God. Many of the Jews were even afraid to say it out loud in any circumstance, choosing instead to refer to it indirectly as the name. Contrast that to our day, to a time when God has, in an act of almost incomprehensible grace and mercy, chosen to fully reveal Himself in Christ as Emmanuel, God with us, and has given to us the true name of the Lord our God, the only name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. For Christ's sake. Jesus, Grandpa. Christ. You're my kid. For his kid. Jesus Christ. God. God's name is degraded, blasphemed, and reduced to a cheap expletive by so many in today's entertainment industry that one wonders if it isn't a default key on their word processors. One goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Ken Kesey, the author of Sometimes a Great Notion and the Academy Award-winning One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, provided perhaps the best summation of the pride and irreverence that characterizes so much of today's art and entertainment. The job of the artist, Kesey told one college class, is to say, F you, God, F you and the Old Testament you wrote in on. Kesey's sentiments were echoed by actress Amanda Donahoe. Blindly worshipping your false god. <laughs> Fancy praying to a god who was nailed to a wooden cross. When asked about her character's venomous hatred of Christ in the Ken Russell film Lair of the White Worm, Donahoe replied, I'm an atheist, so it was actually a joy. Spinning on Christ was a great deal of fun. From cartoons... What do you know, wife? to comedy. Maybe there's no devil. It's just God when he's drunk. Yes, God did exist. He died. He was very small. <laughs> Mystery solved. Sitcoms. If there's a heaven, I don't want to go there unless my stool is waiting for me. And I'll tell you what, even God better not be on it. To music videos. Soon I discovered that this rock thing was true. Jesus was the devil. Evidence of LaVey's satanic age is virtually all around us. In fact, here in the world of rock and roll, blasphemy's steady drip becomes a river of curses and dark sayings against the name of God. Who designed your new t-shirt? Uh, you mean the one with the demon, uh, the, the beastie guy strangling Jesus? His heart's blowing, blood's coming out of his eyes. That's the one. Yeah, I thought of that one. Fear not, for on this day on MTV, it's the Pee Wee's Playhouse Christmas special. <laughs>
surveying the world of modern entertainment, it almost seems as if the words of Matthew's gospel have come to life in a new and disturbing way. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, and they put up over his head the accusations made against him, and those who passed by blasphemed against him, wagging their heads. Amid cries of, we have no king but ourselves, Christ's holy garments are again being dragged through the mire of man's rebellion. Heads wagging, drunk with the wine of spiritual fornication, a great chorus again opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. May He have mercy on us. Having reduced God to a plot device, it would naturally follow that the system of faith and practice He's granted humanity should become an object of ridicule as well. Add to this the attitudes towards Christianity of so many in the industry, and you have a recipe for spiritual anarchy. Whether it's showing contempt for the scriptures. Hey, look at this, kids. Just what I've been warning you about. Poking fun at going to church even worse than you thought. Well, what kind of crowd? He's not doing drugs, is he? No, no. <laughs> He's going to church. Oh, God, no. What's this? I'm off to church. He's whacked. Bart? Making light of prayer. Dear God, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Ridiculing the doctrine of the and Trinity. Let me try and summarize this. God is his son, and his son is God, but his son moonlights as a Holy Ghost, a Holy Spirit, and a dove, and they all sent each other, even though they're all one and the same thing. Got it. Wait a minute. What I said, does that make any sense to you? Well, no. No, but it makes no sense to anybody. That's why you have to believe it. Twisting and perverting the cross. or denigrating the work of Christian missionaries. You are sinners! You are not married! You sin against God! Mockery and sacrilege has become standard fare in today's entertainment industry. So let's get started fighting Satan right now. Let's get busy! It's almost as if Hollywood has declared an unholy war on the Christian faith. Judith, I do not want my son studying the Bible in a group with other kids. It's like something they do in, in the South. The most common and subtle method of attack is to introduce some element of Christianity as a minor subplot and then play it for cheap laughs. The 1989 comedy, Major League, for example, featured a token Christian, one who characteristically was portrayed as a hypocrite, squaring off against the occult beliefs of the team's big hitter. You know, you might think about taking Jesus Christ as your savior instead of fooling around with all this stuff. Yes. Not only is his cartoon-like faith scorned by the film stars, but the movie, quite literally, rains ridicule on his attempt to lead the team in prayer. ...and protect us as we gird up our loins to take the field of battle. Lead us on to victory in the name of Jesus. And if that weren't enough, he later learns to respect the voodoo doll, finally relying upon it as well. At times, these subplots can reach levels of intense hostility. The 1981 movie Dragon Slayer, for example, not only portrayed Christianity as being powerless in the face of evil. Unclean beast, get thee down! Be thou consumed by the fire of the When the dragon is finally killed, by sorcery and occult powers, of course, the supposed impotence of the Christian faith is made even worse by the pastor's spurious claim that God had delivered them. We thank thee, Lord, for this divine deliverance. Verily is thy presence amongst us fully manifest. 
when he then exhorts his naive followers to, quote, forsake the pagan mysteries and rejoice in the true power of the Christian faith, end quote. The true message could not be more clear. Christianity is a sham and a poor substitute for the vitality of pagan religion. Some would argue that examples like these simply point to an insensitivity born of the industry's overall ignorance of organized religion. That this ignorance exists is undeniable. One respected producer, for example, noted, I gave up going to church at 17. I don't know anyone who goes to church. In fact, studies show that over 90% of the creative people in Hollywood seldom or never attend religious services. Can mere ignorance, however, adequately explain the observation made by Joseph Barbera of Hanna-Barbera cartoon fame when he described his 17-year struggle to bring the greatest adventure Bible series to the small screen? I just couldn't get it off the ground with them, he said. The word Bible scares everybody for some reason. This apprehension concerning traditional faith can be more recently seen in shows like Amazing Grace, an example of a new trend in the industry to, in the words of the show's network president, be more in touch with religion, something that Americans seem to be seeking out more strongly than ever before. A laudable goal to be sure, but how does the show then characterize this new quest for spirituality? Well, Patty Duke, the star of Amazing Grace, perhaps said it best. We rarely use the word G-O-D, she said. Certainly we evoke the notion that there is an otherness, but mostly that otherness is in each of us and can be tapped one by the other. The popular film Steel Magnolias also seemed to go out of its way to avoid portraying traditional Christian beliefs. The true story of a courageous woman with diabetes who risked death in order to have a child, the movie made virtually no reference to the faith that governed her life. Dr. Pat Robinson, her real-life husband, described a woman the audience never saw. She was a Christian, he said. She witnessed to people. She was a real servant. We prayed and had devotions every night. Without God, Susan would have never been able to get through it all. Significantly, when Christian faith did make an appearance in the film... I think we should pray. Well, we're back to the standard Hollywood stereotype. Amen. Was she praying? Yes. Why? Got me. Maybe she was praying because the elastic is shot in her pantyhose. Who knows? She prays at the drop of a hat these days. Apparently, Christianity is fine for the requisite fool but doesn't fit into the Hollywood version of a hero. We are in the house of the Lord. Popular critic Michael Medved, author of the groundbreaking Hollywood versus America, echoed this conclusion when he described a conversation he had with the producer of another rewritten version of a hero's life. This one taken right from the pages of the Bible. After describing the grotesque way the movie chose to portray the end of King David's life, as an embittered man who destroys the model of the temple in a fit of rage against God. Medved asked the producer the obvious question, why? I said, where did you come up with this interesting idea to change the ending of King David's story from the way it appears in the book? The gentleman said something amazing that I think speaks volumes about Hollywood's motivation. What he said was this. He said, yeah, sigh. We could have gone the easy way and played to the Bible belt and made King David some kind of a holy Joe, but we wanted a character with more integrity. Others in the industry embrace anti-Christian sentiments that run much deeper than this type of fuzzy thinking. Media mogul Ted Turner, for example, has openly described his own personal rejection of his childhood faith. And I, I began to uh, lose my faith. I, I did. I lost my faith. And the further more I lost it, the better I felt, if you want. And even more boldly, his rejection of the central truth of Christianity. He had to come down here and uh, suffer and die on the cross so with his blood our sins would be washed away. Weird, man, I'm telling you. I mean, Given this perspective, his willingness to use his position to champion the myths that are commonly used to stir up anti-Christian sentiment should come as no surprise. Most of the problems in the world, and I think religion's response, it's religion that, that under the guise of religion, they, uh, 
murdered uh, tens of thousands of women as witches uh, only a hundred years ago, burned them at the stake. You know, it's like Note that the Salem witch trials occurred 300 years ago, and the number of women executed, six. And also both Jesus and then St. Paul said you must go out, it is our task as Christians to convert everybody on earth, and if you have to kill them first, kill them. Renowned author Gore Vidal echoed both Turner's disdain for the Christian faith and his willingness to rewrite history in order to attack it. In the fourth century, they invented Christianity. It is a, an anthology of, of local cults. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Vidal acknowledged, I've always found Christianity extremely funny, he said. The logic of the Trinity is so gorgeously absurd that it makes me laugh. The occasion for the interview was the release of his new book, described by the magazine as a full frontal assault on the New Testament. Live from Golgotha features Jesus as a coarse, loveless fraud who never went to the cross, and St. Paul as a lusty homosexual. Popular director Paul Verhoeven has also joined this unholy chorus, describing Christianity as a major symptom of schizophrenia in half the world's population and superstar Robin Williams we're descended from pilgrims people who were so uptight the English kicked them out has compared it to a venereal disease I think they came here they landed oh god hi hi we, we'd like to bring you some gifts Christianity and syphilis <laughs> and thus we come to a place more insane than ironic where the pagan practices of American Indians are treated with loving respect where Eastern religions bask in the warm fuzzies of spiritual awe, and where even the occult is given the benefit of the doubt. He said the divine force is what the soul is made of. While the Christian faith of untold millions is portrayed as a potential breeding ground for neo-Nazis, public executions, and a religion-induced madness that can lead to everything from mob violence to a mother's willingness to kill her child for God. Do you love God? Yes. Tell him that. Don't be afraid, baby. Far too often, this is the gospel according to Hollywood. Finally, and of course closely related to blasphemy against God and against his kingdom, is the entertainment industry's general view of the citizens of that kingdom. And here again, as in the days of old, Christians are being thrown to the lions. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When MASH opened in theaters some 25 years ago, it created quite a stir. Director Robert Altman's innovative style his use of overlapping dialogue, for example, garnered the film a number of Oscar nominations. You're gonna catch this syndrome before, babe. This day our daily no, not with anyone beyond the age of eight years old, I have. Few critics seem to note, however, the film's fresh approach to character development, specifically the way it portrayed Christians. Frank, were you on this religious kick at home, or did you crack up over here? Not content to just openly mock his faith, a practice that incredibly seemed to spread throughout the entire camp, the movie took every opportunity to portray him as a consummate hypocrite. God meant us to find each other. His will be done. The character's final exit in a straitjacket signaled the beginning of a new era and a bold new way of looking at Christians. Hit me again, I'm a Christian. On a holy mission to a... God sometimes Safe, Bob, safe, Bob. My husband trusted that his son would take the lessons of the Lord with him, no matter what instrument of the devil caressed his hand. Thanks for decent church-going women with their mean, pinched, 
bitter, evil faces. Enroll them in Edna Grambo's juvenile rehabilitation summer Bible concentration camp. I slept with my best friend's husband, and I also slept with my Uncle James. Doesn't it take a tremendous amount of courage to come up here on nationwide cable hookup and confess to human frailties? And I also shoplifted this You've been forgiven. And I also stole Demons out! Of course, the charge can be made, and frequently has, that Christians have left themselves open to this ridicule because of the behavior of the occasional and sometimes well-publicized hypocrite. What this charge ignores, however, is first that this hypocrisy doesn't represent the standards of Christianity. In fact, its founder reserved his most scathing criticism for religious people who engage in this type of behavior. And second and most important, the charge ignores the good that has been done by Christians a good that far, far outweighs the bad. Whether you're talking about civil liberty, free enterprise, art, science, the existence of hospitals, care for the poor, on and on, the world would be a far less inviting place were it not for the influence of Christianity. And Hollywood, by opting to romanticize pagans while making fun of or demonizing Christians, is ironically attacking the foundation of the very culture upon which it was built. Today, that culture stands on the brink of destruction. Bereft of God, clinging tenuously to the last vestiges of moral sanity, pop culture has developed an almost insatiable appetite for sleaze and sensationalism, for the twisted and demonic. And incredibly, presumed Christians seem more and more to be the first choice on the menu. Based on the true story of Blanche Taylor Moore, accused of killing her husband, her lover, her own father. I brought him to Jesus. Elizabeth Montgomery, Black Widow Murders, NBC Monday. Okay, here's how it goes. I'm the leader, Milhouse is my loyal sidekick, Nelson's a tough guy, Martin's a smart guy, and Todd's the quiet religious guy who ends up going crazy. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. <laughs> Ready to be born again, Miss Bowden? A few minutes alone with me, darling, you will be speaking in tongues. God is in his holy town. Earthly thoughts be silent now. The heathen are coming to thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. For the Holy Spirit is electricity, and the chair is God's instrument of justice and salvation. Hallelujah! I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Oh, it was so weird. The bishop of my parents' church called me. Oh, and he wanted um, an incest call with like a four-year-old girl. My father, what? How did I name? I can you go. Bring him the blood of the outlander. Praise God! Praise the Lord! Praise God! Praise the Lord! The Lord will give me a sign. Ooh! shall be lifted up to rapture when the judgment trump blows none but the faithful brothers and sisters the mockery aside there's a truth in this pathetic preacher's words a truth the entertainment industry and its audience desperately needs to keep in mind the trump of judgment for each of us is just a heartbeat away and truly only the faithful will inherit the kingdom as for the faithless, well, keep in mind that eternity holds degrees of both joy and suffering. For those who dare to speak against God, to blaspheme His name, His temple, and His children, hell will be a very hot place indeed.
we serve an awesome God, one who for some inexplicable reason loves us enough to have sent his son to die for our sins. How long will we allow his honor to suffer shame? We've been given an awesome glimpse into heaven's eternal truths. How long will we allow them to be ridiculed by vain words? And because of the sacrifice of countless Christian men and women, our nation is, or at least was, free and prosperous. How long will we allow their honor to also suffer shame? Ten years later, and now more than ever, we need to ask ourselves the same question. How long? A lot has happened in the intervening years. Our nation has gotten more decadent, while the dangers that could spell the end of our culture are now more real than at any time in the last generation. Keep in mind that among the reasons the jihadists, the perpetrators of 911, hate us is precisely because of our decadence and the way we're spreading it throughout the world. Dare we think that God will sustain and protect us as long as we keep amusing ourselves to death? God is not mocked. Whatever a man or a nation sows, that he will also reap. And if we keep sowing to the flesh, to our carnal natures, from that same flesh, we will reap destruction. How much longer, America? What's it going to take for us to lay aside our idols and turn back to God?